Well, let's turn in our copies of God's Word at this time to Paul's epistle to the Romans. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Romans 3, beginning in verse 9. Let's hear now God's holy word. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin." May the Lord bless this reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Well, relying upon the Lord for His help and blessing this morning, let's turn back to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And last time we focused our attention starting in verse 9 where Paul, having essentially confronted the Gentiles for their sinfulness at the end of Romans chapter 1, and then spent most of Romans chapter 2, even on into the opening portion of Romans chapter 3, confronting the Jews with their sinfulness, showing that both Jews and Gentiles, really all mankind by nature, is disqualified from being declared righteous in the sight of God. But here he's he's building on what he's just said in confronting the Jews. He says, what then? Are we better than they? In other words, Paul is a Jew ethnically, and uh, Jesus was a Jew ethnically. Paul believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior and proclaimed the Gospel to Jews and Greeks, Gentiles. And he's saying to his uh, Jewish countrymen, after we've looked at all of your failures and foibles and sins and uh, hypocrisy, are are we really better than they are? I mean, let's be honest here. We're not. Not at all, he says. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. And then he pivots to a series of quotations from the Hebrew Bible which of course are relevant for all nations, but specifically here he's confronting the self-righteousness of the Jews and quoting their own Bible, so to speak, to them. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Justification means the legal declaration that someone is righteous in the sight of the law, in the sight of God's throne of justice. And he's saying nobody qualifies. It's impossible for a just and holy God who knows the secrets of your heart, who has recorded all your ways, it's impossible for Him to declare you righteous if you're not righteous. And the fact is, he's saying we're all unrighteous. There is none righteous, no, not one. And he's, of course, quoting from the Psalms. There is none righteous, no, not one. We saw last time. Uh, that uh, we have this tendency 
to exalt ourselves with this superiority complex. And Paul says the solution to this superiority complex is the biblical doctrine of sin. And according to Paul, the biblical doctrine of human sin teaches that man's enslavement to sin is not only universal by nature, in other words, in our father Adam, that's the natural condition in which we all come into this world, uh, but also that sin is comprehensive, that every part of our humanity is corrupted. Not to the maximum extent or degree, but every department or compartment is corrupted such that we are unrighteous and we are defiled in every aspect of our humanity. Our mind, our will, our emotions, our conscience, uh, everything. Our words, our deeds, our vocational life, our intellectual life, our religious life. Everything is Corrupted. We said it's like an ice cube tray where uh, you, 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 know, you could fill the ice cube tray so that every single compartment is filled to the brim. That's not the doctrine of total depravity. We're not saying everybody is as bad as they could possibly be. But it's as if every compartment of the ice cube tray has some water in it. So, some more, some less. Uh, that's the doctrine of total depravity or comprehensive sinfulness of mankind. Not to the fullest extent, but every part is corrupted. And Paul uh, asserts his main thesis, as I mentioned, that there is none righteous, no, not one. He says, you're in this comparative mindset trying to think about, well, this person's better than that person, and I'm better than her or better than him. Are we better? He says you need to focus on the absolute standard. Are you righteous? And if the answer is no, if you're corrupted, if you're not righteous, then it doesn't matter if you're less unrighteous than this guy or that person. So he shifts their focus from comparisons of who's better or worse to the idea that no one fits the description, the absolute standard that God has for someone who is to be justified, for someone who is to go to heaven. No one is righteous. And we said that if we still want to compare ourselves to someone, then we can compare ourselves to God's holy character or to God's holy character manifested in the Lord Jesus Christ who knew no sin and became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. We, we looked at that. And we were humbled by the the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, which, as it were, shines the light to expose our sinfulness, our inadequacy, our unrighteousness. And we saw that there are just no exceptions to this. Not one. Nobody comes into the world inherently righteous with a right standing before God, and therefore everybody needs to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody needs to be saved by Christ. There's no trapdoor of salvation for people in a far off land that have never heard the gospel or people that are nearby, your next door neighbor who's really nice to you on judgment day. Uh, God is not going to say, well, you rejected my, the, the light of nature. You rejected the law that I wrote on your heart. You rejected the gospel. You lived for yourself. You violated every one of my commandments in thought, word, and deed. You lived as if there was no God or you chiseled out an idol in your own image, but you were really nice to Bob, so welcome to heaven. That's not going to happen. And when we think that way and we say like Joel Osteen, well, I don't know, Larry. I'm not really sure what to think about. No, you're actually making yourself God because if somebody looks good or looks to be nice to you, you're going to waffle on whether they deserve hell. We all deserve hell. And that's the truly nice or loving position because it's true. And it lights a fire under us to actually go and evangelize people because pretending that nice people go to heaven is not going to end well at the final judgment for them or for us in terms of our disobedience to the call of evangelism. Well, Paul then traces man's unrighteousness to man's mind. And that's what we're focusing on here this morning. Paul traces man's unrighteous conduct 
to man's mind or intellect. Notice the first portion of verse 11. There is none who understands. There is none who understands. So he's dealing here with man's mind, man's intellect, man's understanding. He's saying that it's not just that man is unrighteous, but man is foolish. Man doesn't understand. By nature, we come into this world and there's something wrong with us. Our sin has affected the way we think, the way we process information, the way we reason, the way that we answer the big questions of life. And so when the Gospel comes to us, it seems like foolishness because it cuts against this sinful mind, or as Paul says, the carnal mind, which is at enmity with God, it cannot submit to the law of God. It will not submit to the law of God. There is none who understands. And when Paul says this, what he's really saying is that all men by nature refuse to understand. Because he's already made it clear in terms of the Gentiles in chapter 1 verse 18 that God's wrath is revealed against their ungodliness and unrighteousness, not because they're just simply ignorant and they have no ability to comprehend any of these things. They're not, they haven't been exposed to any of the truths of God's existence and His character and His moral law. They're just by nature ignorant and, and boy, if they received knowledge, if they were... Uh, confronted with the truth of God's existence and God's moral law, oh, then they, they would be so interested. And No, that's not the case. He says, in fact, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So there's no one righteous. And in that unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. No one who understands. It is a willful ignorance. It is the will, the sinful, corrupt will of man which drowns the intellect until it's just floating and bobbing in the water. None who understands. It's a willful ignorance. They refuse to understand. The same is true of those who reject God's special revelation in the Bible. Uh, For instance, Paul's Jewish countrymen. He says, Romans 10, verse 3, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness. In other words, they're ignorant of the righteousness God has provided for sinners in and through the Messiah, Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. It's basically the main theme of the Old Testament, but they're ignorant of it. Though they meticulously study the Hebrew Bible, they're ignorant of it. And it says, and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Well, wait a second. That seems contradictory, right? He says they're ignorant of God's righteousness, but then he says they refuse to submit to God's righteousness. What's he saying? Well, he's saying they're ignorant of it because they put it out of their mind, because they don't like it. Whether it's conscious or subconscious or whatever it is, when they read the Hebrew Bible, they suppress any idea that they're saved by the righteousness which God graciously and freely provides. They want to establish their own righteousness. And so when they see the law of God in the Bible, they see it as a stairway or a ladder leading to heaven. When they see God confronting the unrighteous in the Bible, they're not convicted of their own sin. No, that applies to the Gentiles. That applies to everybody else. That doesn't convict me. It's not me saying with Isaiah, woe is me, I am unclean. I'm a man of unclean lips. No, it's only the people out there that have unclean lips. But I'm better. I'm superior. And because they have a desire in their will to be righteous in their own selves, in their own performance, and to be superior, they refuse to submit to the righteousness of God to the point where they evict it from their minds and they won't even consider it. They pretend it's not there and therefore they are ignorant of God's righteousness. Paul expounds this willful ignorance in a number of different passages uh, let's, let's look at 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12. 
Uh, Listen, here's what Paul says. Verse 12, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. So he's saying the Holy Spirit comes into the life of a believer. The Holy Spirit regenerates a person and dwells in a person and enables that person to understand the truths that God has given and revealed in the Bible. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. In other words, we're not presenting the gospel or the message of Christianity as this philosophical worldview only, but we're bringing the texts of Scripture We're expounding them. We're explaining them. We're using the words that the Bible uses, the concepts and the truths that the Bible presents, whether they gel or jive with man's preferences or not, whether they seem to be uh, clothed in in a sort of uh, uh, an acceptable garb in the culture or not. We're just going to bring the truth, God's wisdom, not man's wisdom, using the words and the truths of the inspired Word of God. So we have a spiritual message that's spiritually discerned. Now listen, verse 14. But the natural man, and this is the man that's described in our sermon text this morning, the natural man, it's who we all were by nature. If we've been saved by Christ, we're no longer the natural man, but that's our background, so we can relate to that. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to Him. Now that resonates with our experience. You try to share the Gospel with someone, maybe around the Thanksgiving table or something like that. Uh, You try to share the Gospel with a friend or a neighbor or a family member, a loved one. Maybe you're out on the street evangelizing. And you and I both know that is typically the response. You try to share truths from the Word of God and uh, people don't receive it. That's the norm. That's the typical response. The natural man does not receive uh, the truths that the Spirit has inspired and that that you're declaring as you proclaim the Gospel. They don't want to hear it. They think it's foolish. They think it doesn't make any sense. It's ridiculous. It's a fairy tale. It's a cult. Whatever you want to say. They don't like it. They reject it. But notice it goes on. Their foolishness to Him. Nor can He know them because they're spiritually discerned. So, so, without going too deep here, uh, where I need a, a life raft to keep from drowning, this is a deep theological subject here, but there's an element that is willful, and there is an element where, by nature, they, as carnal human beings, simply cannot grasp the truths of the Bible. And we could debate whether it's 100% on account of their willful choice that they have no capacity or whether there are just certain elements of the Gospel that because they're unregenerate, they can't understand. But I think we can at least say this. The parts of the Gospel that they can intellectually comprehend, just at an intellectual level, they despise them and they hate them. Whether there are truths in the Gospel or in the Scriptures that just are so beyond them that they can't understand, the parts they can understand, the Ten Commandments, the idea of a substitutionary atonement, these basic concepts that we can explain to people, you know, the, the four spiritual laws, whatever you want to call it, these basic truths, you're a sinner, you need a Savior, God is holy, and here's His law, and here's how you've broken it. They don't like that by nature. They don't receive that. They think that's foolishness. And so they're accountable for that willful ignorance. Verse 15, but he who is spiritual... Not by nature, but who's been born again by the Spirit. Judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. That's not saying the true Christian is not accountable to the church or accountable to the brethren. But what it's saying is that ultimately, God's Word reveals the mind of God. 
And as you're teachable and learning under the means of grace and learning from instruction in the church and growing through the means of grace and accountability in the church, as you latch on to the truth of God in your mind and in your conscience, nothing trumps God's Word. And so, if somebody comes into this pulpit and starts preaching against justification by faith alone, or starts denying the Trinity, or starts proclaiming things that are clearly contrary to the Word of God that you have learned in the, in the context I just explained, then you need to hold on to the Word of God. And if somebody judges you for that, well, you know, we'll see you at the last judgment because you have a duty to cling to God's Word. And no one has the authority to judge you for believing what God has said in His Word. Now, now heretics are going to abuse that, but they're going to abuse everything. Uh, you need to cling to the Word of God and have the mind of Christ, regardless of what, in a sense, whatever, what anybody else says against it. But the unconverted person doesn't have that capacity and doesn't have that desire And so they refuse to receive the things of the Word of God. They refuse to understand them. Proverbs 3.5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not upon your own understanding. Why do the unconverted not understand? Because they're leaning on their own understanding. And in order for them to receive what God is declaring and understand it and believe it, they would have to pivot away from their own understanding and they don't want to do that. They want to do what's right in their own eyes. It's an intellectual pride. Uh, Isaiah 29, verse 16 describes this same phenomenon. Even among the people of God. Isaiah 29, 16. Uh, Just listen. Surely you have things turned around. And that's the idea. The apostles turned the world upside down. Uh, Really, they were turning it right side up because the world has turned everything on its head. Uh, And the unconverted has uh, attempted a role reversal with God intellectually. Surely you have turned things around or have things turned around you're mixed up here Uh, shall the potter be esteemed as the clay for shall the thing made say of him who made it he did not make me or shall the thing formed say of him who formed it he has no understanding and this is the unconverted person who essentially looks at the word of God and questions it God is on, on trial here. God is being evaluated. Um, God says He made the world in six days. God says He made Adam out of the dust. God says that He knit me together in my mother's womb. Well, I'm going to judge that claim. And, and maybe it's the case that He didn't make me. Uh, and, and all the blessings and all the benefits that I have in this life. Well, I'll decide where those came from. And I'll consult various sources. I'm not going to submit myself to the Word of God. He has no understanding. You see, the boldness of this intellectual pride, this refusal to understand, the reason they're not understanding is almost from the outset, they're already beginning to to accuse God and find fault with His Word, with this role reversal. Uh, Surely you have things turned around. And what's going to happen is at at the final judgment, God's going to make that clear and your role and your position under God is going to be very clear. And it's going to be seen that you're the one on trial. You're the one being evaluated, not the Word of God. And so fundamentally, it's an issue of humility. It's an issue of of humbling ourselves to let God be God. He is the potter. We are the clay. He is sovereign. And we are creatures in this universe that He has made in this story that He has sovereignly decreed from all eternity. God is God. Let God be true and everyone a liar. And we're not here to critique God. He's the potter. We're the clay. In fact, in one sense, if we critique God, guess what? He decreed from eternity that you would critique Him. I mean, at every point, uh, at every point, if we look at the biblical message, we're humbled in the dust. And yet, the unconverted natural man, he has no understanding. He did not 
make me. Uh, That's fundamentally the issue. It's not an intellectual issue. It's an issue of submission. Uh, The Gentiles traded God for an idol because they wouldn't submit to God. The Jews didn't submit to God's righteousness because they didn't want to have a righteousness that they couldn't claim uh, uh, ownership of. They refused to understand. And this, this word, understand, in Greek, brings the idea of making connections. Synthesizing the data. Putting two and two together, we might say. That's the idea of this word. Synthetic reasoning. A equals B. B equals C. Well, wait a second. Uh, A equals C. But they refused to make the connections. Uh, you see a comical, almost comical, if it wasn't true, example of this in Isaiah chapter 44. Where uh, the natural man in his idolatry just can't quite put two and two together. Um, Isaiah 44 and verse 19. In fact, I'm going to start earlier. All right, verse 13. Listen to this. The craftsman stretches out his rule. He marks one out with chalk. He fashions it with a plane. He marks it out with the compass and makes it like the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. He cuts down cedars for himself and takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine and the rain nourishes it. By the way, when we say no one understands, we're not denying that people have lots of skill and knowledge and intelligence in areas of science and technology and craftsmanship. The Bible doesn't deny that. It's just that they're not able to make the connections. When it comes to God, when it comes to spiritual things, when it comes to eternity, when it comes even in many cases to morality, they'll affirm all the premises, but for some reason it does not compute. So listen, verse 15. Then it shall be for a man to burn, for he will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire. With this half he eats meat. He roasts a roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god. His carved image. He falls down before it and worships it. Prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. So half of it he uses to build a fire. To make his roast. And the other half he fashions into a god. And bows down to it and prays to it and relies upon it. But he's just not making connections. Uh, Verse 18, they do not know nor understand, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. See, the more we suppress the truth in unrighteousness, Romans 1 says, the more God gives us over and our foolish hearts are darkened. Uh, Ephesians 4, our understanding is darkened. And we make less of a connection and fewer and fewer connections. And so, God is, as it were, saying, you're not going to use this light, this knowledge, this intellect that I gave you. You're going to abuse it. Well, then I'm going to take it away. If you don't use it, you lose it. Verse 19, And no one considers in his heart, nor is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I have also baked bread on its coals. I have roasted meat and eaten it, and shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? A failure to make connections. A failure to look at all of the implications of the beliefs and the decisions that are made. And you see the very same thing when Jesus confronts the religious leaders of the Jews. 
in Mark chapter 12. Jesus has been expounding the Old Testament, which points to him. He's been bringing out the real meaning of God's law, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and here and there, uh, letting them in on the fact that, that he is the Savior and he is the Son of God. Notice the scribes and Pharisees just refuse to make obvious connections. Mark chapter 12, verse 35. Mark chapter 12, verse 35. Then Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Uh, You know, in... uh, Second Samuel and in uh, the book of uh, Second Chronicles, I believe it is, God makes a covenant with David that he's going to send the Messiah. And it's going to be the descendant, the son of David. So every, you know, the, the scribes and Pharisees recognize that. He says, how is it that the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, in Psalm 110 verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And of course, the Pharisees and the scribes acknowledge that this is a reference to the Messiah, David's Lord. So Jesus is saying, okay, let's look at this. Therefore, uh, David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? Now, the great objection that Jesus' foes kept bringing against him is, we know who your parents are. Of course, they didn't understand the virgin birth, but they basically say, we know you're the son of Joseph and Mary. We know who your parents are. We know you're from Nazareth. Uh, the, the Messiah is supposed to be sent from God. And, and you're claiming at times to be the Son of God, but we know who your parents are. And therefore, you can't be the Son of God. This, again and again, this was the objection. You see it throughout the Gospels. And uh, Jesus grew up in Galilee, right? So they were even attacking that. Does a prophet come from Galilee? Apparently they forgot about Jonah. But in any event, um, they're attacking Jesus because he is of human origin. And therefore, he can't be the Son of God. But Jesus says, therefore, David calls the Messiah Lord. How is he then his Son. In other words, he's pointing out that in the Old Testament, it's very clear the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, that the Messiah would minister in Galilee of the Gentiles, Isaiah 9, that he would be a human descendant of David, but that he would be mighty God, God with us, David's Lord. The Messiah would be both God and man. I mean, this is just a basic teaching of the Old Testament biblical prophecy of the Messiah. And so he's bringing these things out and he's showing here he's David's son, here he's David's Lord, but they can't put two and two together. And by the way, this is after they had grilled him with all kinds of accusations and tough questions trying to trip him up and get him in trouble. And he brings these basic biblical teachings together and they refuse to understand it. They refuse to get it. But the next thing is very significant. And the common people heard him gladly. So this is not a matter of the Bible presenting something that's just for the ivory tower philosopher or theologian or somebody who can parse out their Greek and Hebrew. The religious leaders, the scribes, the theologians refuse to put these obvious biblical truths together, but the common people heard Him gladly. My friends, the natural man can be very intellectual, academic, even theological. The natural man can have all kinds of uh, intellectual prowess and superiority at some level, but the fact of the matter is, at the, at, at, when it comes down to it, even the common people can see through it if they know their Bible. Now, uh, let's think about this refusing to make connections. Where do we see this in our own day? Where do we see people, as it were, taking half of the tree and making an idol and worshiping it and praying to it, and the other half they burn in the fire? Well, look at the prevailing worldview in our society that has arisen up in uh, opposition to the gospel and in opposition to the Bible. Secular humanism. Secular humanism says on the one hand, there is no absolute moral standard. 
If you ask people on the street, is there an absolute moral standard, and you give a couple of illustrations, virtually everyone, certainly everyone who espouses this predominant worldview will say that they do not believe in an absolute standard of morality, that morality is relative, morality is based upon utilitarianism, pragmatism, morality is based upon uh, different cultures, different strokes for different folks. There's no absolute moral standard. But you begin to speak to them about, for instance, the election or uh, the, you know, politics or issues in our modern society that they think are important, that need to be addressed. Uh, whether, whether they're a conservative or a liberal, they have strong views. They don't believe in any absolute moral standard, and they don't live by any absolute moral standard. But when it comes to political and social ethics, they have strong views about all kinds of things. And it would be a distraction for me to begin to mention them, but you know what I'm talking about. Strong views about what should or should not be done, what is true or false in, in the, the, the public political conversation. I'm telling you whether they're conservative or liberal, they have strong views, and yet they don't live by any absolute standard of morality. They don't believe in any absolute standard of morality. And yet they're seeking to impose their standard of morality on everybody else. And they're complaining that people aren't abiding by truth. The politicians are deceiving people. Well, why, why is that wrong? Mr. Conservative, why is that wrong? If you don't have any absolute standard of morality, we could go on and on. So, on the one hand, there's no standard, but then you begin to press that. If there's no standard, then the slave trade can't be wrong, the Holocaust can't be wrong, and all your pet political issues that you're upset about, they can't be wrong, they can't be adjudicated. We can't actually know and distinguish right from wrong. And they will not acknowledge that conclusion. They will still say there's no absolute standard, but they will not own the utter chaos that will result by necessity from their position. They refuse to make a connection. Uh, this is also true in terms of secular humanism in the way that on the one hand, in order to dethrone God, they've turned man into an animal. Right? Man is an animal. Man is just matter in motion. He doesn't have a mind or a soul. He has a brain. He has instincts. He has synapses and brain chemicals bouncing around. He's subject to his environment. Man is an animal. He's a chimpanzee with a little bit more sophistication, but man is a, literally a mindless chimp. That, that's what they've turned man into. He's mindless. He has a brain, but not a mind. Uh, and therefore, we can have uh, AI, artificial intelligence, because, I mean, really, man's just a machine or an animal. Uh, and he's just an evolved chimp. The mindless chimp. On the other hand, they're humanists. And so they're, they're trying to persuade us that man is the measure of all things. Uh, what these mindless chimps think is the standard of morality. And if the mindless chimps go to the pole, or the mindless chimps sit on the Supreme Court or the mindless chimps that uh, occupy the academia and the scientific community, the mindless chimps have authority, and you'd better listen to the mindless chimps. You'd better worship them. You'd better do what they say. You'd better follow their uh, scientific and medical advice. You'd better submit to their political laws because the mindless chimps. Now you see the foolishness there. It's like the man who has this this pile of wood, and, and some of it he turns into an idol that he worships, and the other half he burns in the fire. They've turned man into a, 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 an animal, someone that literally doesn't have a mind, so why should we give a rip what any of these mindless chimps think? Why should we even think we have the capacity to listen to and discern truth from anything that is said? Why should we listen to the scientist who says you should believe in the theory of evolution if the theory of evolution proves that that scientist is mindless, only has brain chemicals and animal instincts, and therefore, you know, the, the movement of the synapses in his brain are no more significant than if I 
shook up a can of pop and let it fizz around. Uh, It doesn't make any sense. They bring man down, and yet they try to exalt him. And it's clear why they bring man down. They bring man down so they can get rid of the concept of God. They bring man down so they can get rid of the idea that there is a Creator who has put His image upon mankind. And so they bring man down to get God out of the equation, and pretty soon they, they put that man back on the throne. And so we worship at the footstool of the mindless chimp god of secular humanism. This man who is an animal and yet is the measure of all things. When Paul says there is none who understands, he's specifically pointing out that there is none who understands or considers God Himself. As we said, there are many things that man understands. There are many things unbelievers understand far more than ourselves in terms of science and technology. But the fact of the matter is that man refuses to consider God. Psalm 10.4, God is not in all His thoughts. Or translated differently, all His thoughts are there is no God. Psalm 14.1, The fool has said in his heart that there is no God. It's a refusal to take God into account. And again, just thinking politically, you see this among conservatives and liberals. They don't talk, most of them, about God and about the implications of the fact that there is a sovereign God to whom we're all accountable. A God who is in control of the rise and fall of nations, of the prosperity or lack thereof in a nation. They don't talk about it. They don't consider God. God is not in all their politics. God is not in all their thoughts or their speeches or their agendas or their programs or their platforms. God is just not there. It's as if there is no God. Jeremiah 4, verse 22 says this, For my people are foolish. They have not known me. They are silly children and they have no understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good they have no knowledge. So we've got scientists and medical professionals spending all their time trying to figure out how to turn a nine-year-old boy into a girl rather than trying to figure out how can we extract that baby that everybody's talking about, the baby that's in the womb, that's going to threaten the mother's life. Why don't we spend our time finding ways to extract babies at earlier and earlier portions, uh, 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 earlier and earlier uh, segments of the pregnancy so that we can save both mother and child? Why don't we spend our time and our money and our medical research and, and, and give these brainiacs something productive to do. No, we're figuring out how to turn girls into boys and boys into girls. Uh, they are wise to do evil, but to do good, they have no knowledge. And if that's God's people, imagine the Gentiles. But you can see, as Paul's saying, there's an element of this in all mankind. Jeremiah 5, verse 21, the very next chapter. Hear this now, O foolish people without understanding, who have eyes and see not, who have ears and hear not. Do you not fear Me, says the Lord? Will you not tremble at My presence who have placed the sand as the bound of the sea by a perpetual decree that it cannot pass beyond it? And though its waves toss to and fro, yet cannot prevail... Though they roar, yet they cannot pass over it. But this people has a defiant and rebellious heart. They have revolted and departed. They do not say in their heart, let us now fear the Lord our God who gives rain both the former and the latter in its season. He reserves for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these things away. My friends, God is good. And we as Americans should know that more than anybody. He's given us so many blessings. He's protected us from so many things that we don't even think about. We, don't, we just take it for granted that we're not dealing with the threats and the dangers that many people in the world face on a daily basis. And why is that? Because of God. Because of His goodness. Because of His sovereignty. And yet we don't give thanks. And we are 
a defiant and a rebellious race of mankind. We don't consider God. We don't think about Him. We're not confronted with Him when we look at the world around us. And even more significantly, we do not consider death and eternity. I mean, this is one of the ultimate connections that the world around us refuses to make. You know you're going to die. You know you're going to die. And you refuse to live as someone who is a brainless chimp. Like, let's be honest, they say these things, but they don't actually live that way. You live as if you have a soul, as if you have meaning, as if you have a mind, and you make rational conclusions. You live as though there's something in you and with you that goes beyond your physical body and brain chemicals. You live that way. And you know your body's going to die. So what's going to happen to your soul? Shouldn't you think about that? Shouldn't you spend time? If you're going to be scrolling through, why don't you scroll through the Bible? Why don't you consider your eternity? You know there's such a thing as right and wrong. Because if we brought up politics, you'd have to acknowledge that even though you really wouldn't want to. You know that there's right and wrong. You know that you're going to die. And so what is to become of your soul for all eternity? The natural man knows about death. He believes in death, yet he lives as if death does not exist. Lives as if it's a fairy tale, as if it's something that he's going to go through a certain period of his life and then pretty much basically anticipate and even decide the point of his death. But you don't know that. Not only does death exist, it could happen literally right now. And you know that. You believe it, but you won't live in light of it. You won't make the connection and make it the most important thing in your life to figure out what happens at death and where your soul goes and, 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 and on from there. At the very least, if, if you could at least be like the rich young ruler who ran to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He had a lot of problems with his perspective, but one thing was for sure. He wanted to know about eternity and eternal life. And he came to the right place. You need to consider death and eternity. We sang before the service in Psalm 49. Psalm 49, which points out the utter foolishness of the natural man in reveling in his own wealth, in his own honor, and uh, the tribute that's paid to him in future generations, and so on and so forth. But... uh, Psalm 49, he says this, verse 11, their inner thought is that their houses will last forever. Their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. Nevertheless, man, though in honor, does not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the way of those who are foolish and of their posterity who approve their sayings. In other words, there have been people living like this for millennia and they're dead doesn't that strike doesn't that get your attention that death is real look at the cemetery death is real people have been living for themselves pretending death doesn't exist for millennia for centuries and now they're all dead and you're going to be dead and what's going to become of you who cares if your house continues? Who cares if, if somehow your house becomes a museum or they name a city after you? Who cares what's going to become of your soul when your body rots in the grave like the carcass of a dead animal? Where is your soul going to be? Verse 14, like sheep, they're laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them, literally shall shepherd them. He goes on, their beauty shall be consumed in the grave far from their dwelling. Your body and mine will rot and will be ugly and detestable to the point where people will bury it, as Abraham said, to get his dead out of his sight. That's where you're headed. So what are you going to do about that? What are you preparing for? He says, but God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave. You're never going to inherit the whole world. But even if you did, what would it profit you to gain the whole world and lose your own soul? You need to think about it. And the Lord laments that even His own people 
refuse to think about it. Deuteronomy 32.39. Listen to this. This is God speaking. Deuteronomy 32.29. Oh, that they were wise. That they understood this. That they would consider their latter end. That's it. That's what God is saying to His people. That's what He's saying here in this passage in Romans 3. He's just saying this. Oh, that you would think about your eternity. Think about your death. Think about your latter end. Consider what your priorities are, what you're living for, your beauty, your wealth, your this, your that. It's all going to burn. It's all going to rot. It's all going to be meaningless. Consider your latter end. And just in closing, just very briefly, how humbling this is for us as believers. Uh, If we're asking the natural man to consider his latter end, as believers, we ought to consider the rock from which we were hewn. We ought to consider that we were all, just as the others, by nature, children of wrath, children of disobedience, with our hearts and our understanding darkened. There we were lying in a pool of blood in our depravity. And the Lord walked by in mercy and freely redeemed us and gave us the mind of Christ. And though we fall into stupidity and foolishness on a daily basis, He continues to show love and mercy and to sanctify us in the truth and to walk with us and help us and forgive us and illuminate our hearts and minds by His Spirit. My friends, are we better? We're better off, but we're not better. We're better off. I wouldn't trade my salvation for anything. By God's grace, I wouldn't. I'm better off. And I hope you're better off than the people we're describing in these verses. But we're not better because that's where we came from. And and apart from the grace of God, that's who we would be. And even with the grace of God, that's how we act and think more often than we would like to admit. So my friends, let this reality of man's fallen intellect, let it produce in you as a believer patience with other people. Patience with the unconverted. Patience with believers that are acting like a beast before the Lord, backsliding in various ways because they're patient with you. Long-suffering, compassion, sympathy. My friends, we cannot fail to grasp the implications of the rock from which we were hewn. That was us. And often, that appears to be how we act. So humble yourself and be optimistic. God saved you. He can save anybody. Pray for them. Labor to evangelize them. Be gracious, sympathetic, patient. Confront them boldly, but love them with a heart that recognizes the heart of stone that it once was. And be optimistic. There is nothing that God has done for you that He can't do for anybody else that He so chooses. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we marvel at Your mercy and at Your sovereignty. You who have declared, I will have mercy upon those for whom I will have mercy and I will harden those I choose to harden. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God whose ways are past finding out. We pray that You would have mercy upon us, that You would humble us, that You would cause us to doubt our own understanding and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ who said, You believe in God, believe also in Me. Make it so for His sake. Amen.